te- technology will not let your hair be great today. I mean, this is just proof that white men are just <laughs> creating everything without us in mind is what is happening. <laughs> Some engineer did not think my Senegalese twists needed some space. I'm just going to talk to the camera instead of looking at you, Bake Off. Is that okay? <laughs> I'm kidding. Welcome to another episode of Black Frasier, you guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> As always, I'm joined in our makeshift studio mm. by my co-producer, my editor, my... Sausage supplier. I'm not a bloody farmer. <laughs> you don't like sausage supplier? It's no. hard to say. Sausage supplier. Sausage supplier. Sausage supplier. Oh, sausage supplier. Yes. Mm. Do you like that title? No. Oh. It's not my favorite by a long way. <laughs> Well, we are in for a a treat today. We have a fantastic episode coming up. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are oh, six and a half months into the core, babe. Yeah. How yeah. are you holding up? Poorly. I think <laughs> however I was doing before we last checked in, yeah. just double how bad it is. What do you mean? I think you and I are both getting a bit cabin feverish of just... The routine of waking up, working all day. Yeah. Going to finish working like, what, seven, eight-ish? Sometimes yeah. I finish at four, but don't tell anyone. Um, but I never finish at 4 no, p.m. I know you don't, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'm just like, ah, screw it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's okay. I mean, yes, we are feeling cabin feverish. I just would like to be in a space where, you know... I don't hear your farts while you're taking a shit. But that's the highlight of your day, <laughs> right? <laughs> it wouldn't be like a Tuesday afternoon without it. Oh, boy. Yeah, we really are just up to speed on everything. Each other, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say the one thing I've learned from about you mm-hmm. during the quarantine yes. is your rage at random objects it's not rage at random objects white person you thought the hulk was bad wait till you see phoebe's rage when the printer doesn't print that is not true i don't like you freaking (laughs) like slandering my 
who I am as a person. <laughs> it's not slander, mom. It is slander. Do I get annoyed? Yes, but we have too much stuff in this apartment, like yeah, trying to <laughs> shove a podcast studio. <laughs> studio in our little office. Yeah. It's been wild. It has. So the office, we basically can't use the space to write in anymore because we have mm. lights everywhere. So I can be lit properly. In it. Um, but that's the one thing you learn about me is that sometimes I get annoyed at the printer. Yeah. Yeah. The only, only thing I've learned. Well, let me learn you something. So teach me something. You could say learn you. Okay. So this bitch, I'm talking about you. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were talking about somebody else. <laughs> I was hoping you were talking about somebody else. <laughs> so, you know, about a few weeks back, you were just like, Oh, you know, I'm just going to get some storage containers so we can like tidy up the apartment here. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, so he orders some from the container store. And then before that arrives, another package arrives. And he's mm. like, oh, this is like my special package. And I was like, yeah, it was. <sighs> and so i was like okay i don't know what this special package is we're still in the pandemic what's so special about it open it up and it's um you got this game flight simulator flight sim microsoft's flight simulator 2020 yes (laughs) so you have uh, people are learning to sew during the quarantine uh people are learning to bake right i'm learning to fly yeah so you has like pedals Mm-hmm. And you have the steering wheel. Called a yoke, but yes. How do you know yes, what to a, call it? A steering wheel for an aeroplane is actually pretty accurate. <laughs> I didn't know they call it a yoke. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I got my rudder pedals. That's what you were referring to, the pedals. Yeah. Yes. I don't have a throttle yet. Yeah. So he has all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's fun. So then the... um. The containers get here. And he's like, oh, yeah, I got all this for you. So you could pack up some of your stuff. Uh, so there's space for my flight simulator yoke and rudder pedals. Objection, Your Honor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How many books did we have to move? Excuse me, books are life. I'm a publisher. So when the plane is burning and we're going down and there's no one left to fly the plane. What? What is, are <laughs> Who you, are you going to call on? What is this? This isn't marriage counseling, by the way. This is this is a, a Wesley Snipes movie where you're just going to suddenly, you're going to fly a plane now based off of flight simulator? Instead, instead of okay. snakes on a plane, it's <laughs> bake off on a plane. <laughs> 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 and I'm just going to save the world, yes. So in this fantasy... Where there is, we're on, we're on a, was it, 747 flight? Ooh, that's a big plane to fly. I don't know if I can do that yet. 717, is that one? Cessna 50 something, like really small planes where it seats like two people. I can handle that. Okay. So in this <laughs> fantasy where we're on some small flight to, let's just say Chicago. Sure. And Sully... That that yeah, pilot know. Sully is not Tom Hanks. 
<laughs> yes, Tom Hanks. <laughs> so Sully's not piloting. No, it's he's so, he's unavailable for today. Right. So it's some scrub piloting, and he yeah. can't handle it. Well, he passes out from fear of flying the plane. Okay. And then, and then you there's mass panic on board. All of two people. Right. So I step up, take control of the airplane, uh-huh. do a perfect landing, and there's everyone there cheering, like at the end of Die Hard 2. And this is all because you're playing a video game? Because I'm learning to fly on Flight Simulator. It's a video game. But it's a simulator video game, yes. Like Farming Simulator 2020, you could actually farm. Or is it 2019? But uh, you can actually farm. At least I'm not doing that. It's also like you could just do these things in reality. Like just take a flight course in reality. I'll just head over to Newark and just go, can I, can I learn to fly? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying you have to like, no, but there are, you could take a flight class. Yeah, for 10 Gs. A flight class does not cost 10 Gs. Not one, but to get your pilot's license, they reckon it's about $10,000. Do you really want to be a pilot? No, but that's why you fly on <laughs> Flight Simulator, isn't it? But, you, you ha- but you're going to fly on it enough that you could just, in some world, so save all our lives. I'm super nerdy and set it to like super hard difficulty, so you have to do all the flight checks before you can <laughs> turn on the airplane. <laughs> Wait, so when I'm in the back watching Real Housewives, you're doing fake-ass flight checks? But they're not fake because they're modeled after real airplanes. <laughs> so it's like turning the f- fuel pump on, pumping the fuel, turn the major master electrics on. Yeah. And then you take off and within 30 seconds lose control. And <laughs> <laughs> that is actually really cute that you do that. I'm kind yeah. of obsessed. I'm Sorry for the noise. I'm drinking a green juice. You think now's a good time to take a sip? I have to stay regular. During the taping? (laughs) (laughs) During my life. I'm in my mid-thirds. You, what? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, shall we get back on track? Yes. And talk about our fantastic guest for today. Yes, we will. I wish you the best of luck in closing. I wish you the best of luck with this flight simulator business. I appreciate it. I flew over our apartment. (laughs) I didn't crash. (laughs) And in the future, Mm -hmm. what I would appreciate is not this rope-a-dope, you know... Um, ruse, ruse. This. What are other words for deception? <laughs> Babe, I'm so dumb. <laughs> do you do you write books? Do you, do you write books? I think you do, right? I would just appreciate that when you are ordering something, you're like, oh, it is for the family. And it really turns out it's just because you want me to get my shit together. So, you guys, we have some merch, honey, bunny. This hoe bag loves merch so much. I do love merch. You know what? Because it's like it's a celebration of the memory you had at that event. So when I go to a concert, you damn skippy on buying the merch. It's just so funny because obviously I was a merch guy for so many <laughs> years in the music industry. 
<laughs> and now I'm dating some one of those people that I would see and go, why do people buy so much of this stuff? <laughs> Remember when we went to Wimpledon? Not trying to brag, but we went to Wimpledon. Mm-hmm. And I got, I had to get all that Wimpledon merch. And I, I even <laughs> politely questioned your purchase, pr- purchasing choices. I was like, do you really need a tennis player's skirt? Okay. Where is the, the Wimpledon fan? Put it in the cupboard. Oh, I did. Okay. So I have a hand fan that says Wimpledon on it. It was pretty hot that day. So I didn't, yeah. I wasn't objecting that purchase. But yeah. the, the tennis whole... skirt, I agree. I've never played tennis. No. But you are ready at the drop of a tennis ball. If Serena needs me for a doubles <laughs> match, I'm fucking ready. Oh my God, I would love to see you and Serena play a doubles match together. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Naomi Osaka. Ooh. You know? That would be great. Step in and yeah. struggle. I feel like if I were a tennis player... Do you think I would ever win any majors? I think if you, if your heart's set on it, you can do anything. Anyway, I do. I buy a lot of merch, and the point is, y'all gonna buy some merch too because that's how it's gonna. The money that we get from the merch. <laughs> do you wanna try that one again? <laughs> y'all gonna buy some merch <laughs> so I can buy other people's merch. <laughs> podcast babe so we have a t-shirt and we have a sweatshirt mm-hmm. and it's if you go to phoeberobinson.com and click on the merch tab you can purchase either or both the sizing is small to 3xl um so if you want this podcast to keep going you guys if you want bake off to be able to keep editing what's the software Audio Plus. <laughs> yes, Audio Plus. The uh, industry standard Audio Plus software. <laughs> What's it called? Adobe Premiere I use. I use Adobe Audition and I use Adobe After Effects. Okay, so that's three softwares. You guys, how are we going to pay for this? Buy a fucking t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so aggressive. But honestly, no pressure. <laughs> now, moving on to the episode at hand. Mm-hmm. I think today's guest, I don't know, I feel like the universe always works in mysterious ways not to, you know, quote the song, you two, mysterious ways. Oh. <laughs> But I do think that given what happened this weekend with Ruth Bader Ginsburg Mm. passing away, um, just an icon, a champion of women, of society, Mm -hmm. just a level-headed person in a a world that feels less sort of level-headed each passing day, that we're having the guests that we have on today um, because in my opinion, I think that she's so smart and wonderful and is <clears throat> looking at the world in such a nuanced and complex way. So I thought that, you know, honoring Ruth's life with our interview with Austin Channing Brown, um, the author of the New York Times bestselling book and a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. 
<laughs> I'm still here. Um, I just think this is such a, a great episode. Austin is so warm and inviting and she does, you know, such hard work with activism and breaking down race for people and talking about the big issues in society. I just think this is just such a special. Sorry, I had a green juice burp. It's such <laughs> And we needed to all go through that journey with you. <laughs> Leave no person behind. Um, and I just think it's just such a special episode to share with everyone today because I think Austin has so many nuggets of wisdom. How did you feel about it? She's one of these people that you talk to for 30 seconds and you automatically feel like you're about to be invited around for Sunday lunch. That's true. Yeah. She's so uh, inviting to everyone. And she's, yeah, she has some very fantastic wisdom nuggets, as you say. It's such a phenomenal episode. I think you guys are really going to love it. Um, I think, you know, it's definitely one of those where if you want to sit around with some friends while you're listening to it as well, because I think mm. it's a great conversation starter. Yeah. Um, and we honestly could have talked for two hours, but plus yeah. she's so she's so easy to talk to and she has so many wonderful things to say. So I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this episode. Um, so buckle up. Get ready to learn something, get ready to feel, and hopefully laugh a little bit too. Mm -hmm. um, so without further ado, here's my interview with Austin Channing Brown. Hi, Austin. Hey, girls. <laughs> <laughs> so excited. This is going to be so fun. I'm really excited about you doing Black Frage. Um, you have just been a voice that has been so special and important during this time. And you're such a great writer and you're a Black queen. So it's just very, very like awesome to have you on the show today. Well, I've been trying to make you my best friend for a long time, so I'm gonna. <laughs> my plan is to nail this interview. <laughs> you will, I swear to God, you will. Okay, so there is so much you have to talk about today. Yes. Um, I mean, I feel like there always is every day, but I just feel like with everything going on in Wisconsin, and you know. Mm -hmm literally nothing happening when it comes to Breonna Taylor right. and a countless other people. Like it just really feels like we are in a, we're in a very sort of kind of um, scary point in our history mm -hmm. in America, you know, with 45 in office and election, you know, pretty, pretty uh, close to happening. I'm just sort of feeling like, what what are what are we doing like that like I know that sounds like such a ridiculous question but that is there's so many times where I like just go through the day and I'll be like fine I'll be working and then last night when I was watching um the part of the the RNC I was mm -hmm. just like oh my god oh wait 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 this is our reality we are in a dangerous point in history right now and it's easy to like forget that when you're doing Zooms or you're taking care of your kids right. or you're right. looking for work. And now we're back in this place where it's like racism is alive and well, as it always has been. That's I right. think a lot of people are now sort of waking up to that, although I don't mm -hmm. understand how 
they weren't before. (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to judge anyone's journey, but, um, yeah, I'm wondering how you're feeling first of all about the state of the nation. And also secondly, because your book, I'm still here is, you know, got the Reese, the Reese book club stamp of approval. It was already a phenomenal book anyway, but I think a lot of white women and a lot of white people in general read the book and were like, Oh shit. You know what I mean? Like I have just not been paying attention. And so I'm wondering sort of like, not the pressure, but this sort of energy that's being blasted your way of Mm -hmm. sort of being this black person who now has to take on the work of explaining racism to white people, how that can be burdensome, especially during this time. So I'm wondering, how are you doing? How are you able to move forward during this time Mm -hmm. that we're living in? Phoebe, I am eating lots and lots of ice cream because it's it's so hard to hold both hope and despair at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that really is what the work of being in anti-racism or racial justice is. It is yeah. constantly holding both hope, but not this like false optimism, like everything will be okay once my kid grows up. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like this, mm-hmm. like, like, all we need is time. Yeah. Right? Like, like that's it. As time passes, things will inevitably get better. Like, that, not that kind of hope, but yeah. the hope that is like, okay, our ancestors have been through shit. We are going through shit. Like, we can do this. Mm-hmm. Change is still possible, right? Change was possible for them. Change is possible for me, right? Like, yeah. that kind of hope. But also a very real despair. Like, it is... It is wearying, Mm -hmm. not just to see all these systemic injustices take place, right? So it's it's one level of trauma to see all these black men dying and to see black women's murders and right, like that's one level of despair. And then there's a whole nother level of despair on top of it that is both white people denying that it's even happening, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or white people with all good intentions who respond. Uh, listening and learning. Yeah. Yeah. And so talk to me about what it must've been like to get the call that you're going to be a book club selection for Reese. Cause that's so like truly every writer dreams of making it on some book club. That's really going to amplify their message and their work. And I think to have, you know, someone like Reese who like, I think, you know, she probably has had to learn a lot too. And just like not been around a lot of black people in the way that like she probably is now. Mm -hmm. Um, So to have that sort of like crossover and have, people willing to now be able to read your message and understand and listen to it because in part that Reese is also like, Hey guys, we all have to wake up. (laughs) Like it can't just be black people's job. It has to be everyone's job. So Mm -hmm. take me through that moment where you got the notification about this happening. Okay. So first of all, I think I could be wrong about this, but I think most people who get picked for Reese's book club know weeks in advance because they want to make sure like that the book Mm -hmm. is in stock and that they can make some decisions about rollout and all these kinds of things. Right. But because my book got picked during the uprising, I had three days notice. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. And, and during a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so the pandemic happens, all of my gigs stop cold, right? So I have no yeah. money coming in. Yeah. And I'm thinking, am I going to have to work at Target, which is down the mm-hmm. street, mm-hmm. you know? And then I'm in the car and I'm not driving. I'm in the car <laughs> scrolling, through, <laughs> scrolling through email 
And all of a sudden, I'm seeing Reese Witherspoon's name. And I'm like, what yeah. is happening? So it feels super surreal mm-hmm. that a book that I released two years ago mm-hmm. is now popular. Yeah. <laughs> it's, super, it's weird, Phoebe. I'm not going to yeah. lie to you. It's weird. I'll take it, but yeah. it's weird. <laughs> but it's uh, so exciting because, you know, we think about so many great Black authors and like being in the mm-hmm. canon, especially when it comes to talking about society and race and like yeah. now to like have your book in that conversation too, mm-hmm. I feel like must be kind of like, oh, I got to pinch me like is this real and also sort of like this level of responsibility of like oh I am now too carrying this torch I am now for this generation of people like I'm able to communicate with them and they really understand more of the plight that we're going through like can you talk about maybe like sort of the responsibility or the pressure you feel that comes with that yeah I have to be really careful Phoebe because Mm -hmm. Um, because so much of the racial justice movement Mm -hmm. is easily co-opted by white supremacy all over again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what can happen and the way that I used to approach sort of racial justice trainings or workshops or speaking, if I can just be completely honest Mm and in in the beginning, I tried really, really hard to make white women cry. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. I like that. And I don't think I was like super conscious of it, Yeah. but, but somehow my definition of success became, can I make myself human enough? Can I make our struggle human enough? Can I, can my, can I make my words powerful enough to move the white people who are sitting in front of me? Mm -hmm. And if I can get them to cry, like if they're that emotionally invested, then maybe that means we have moved something forward here. Right. Yeah. Turns out (laughs) that is not a good barometer of success, Phoebe. (laughs) That's what I learned. I learned that is not a good barometer of success. Yeah. And so what I've tried to do in the last like five, six years or so, and especially with the book, is try to make clear that it is people of color who are dealing with racism. Mm-hmm. Right. We are not the issue. The issue is the racism that we are all trying to navigate. Yeah. And so instead of trying to make white people feel anything, mm-hmm. what if I tried to affirm our experience? What if I tried to name what it is that we're facing? Mm-hmm. What if I gave a, a training or a workshop and black women actually wanted to come back? Yeah. Yeah. That would be unheard of. That would like be amazing. Training yeah. that we want to come back to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so I, I confess to you that I really struggled with this last mm-hmm. night, in particular with everything that was happening with Kenosha and the RNC mm-hmm. and everything, mm-hmm. and feeling like, okay, you have Twitter at your fingertips. What are you going to say? Yeah. And the truth is, Phoebe, is I didn't say a whole lot mm-hmm. because. I was resisting in a desire to speak to white America and to say mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. profound. Mm-hmm. When the truth is, is that most black folks didn't need to hear anything last night other than I see you, I hear you, and I feel the same way. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so with your work in anti-racism, can you sort of talk about um, any sort of changes that you have seen since when you started to now where I feel like people really sort of anti-racism is now a term that a term that is really said a lot, whereas maybe, you know, like even five years ago, not oh, so much. True. Yeah. Oh, it's true. But our, our lexicon for racial justice is becoming mainstream faster than mm. anything I could have ever predicted. Yeah. Um, so like, like for, what feels like for decades, all the only phrase we had was white privilege. Mm-hmm. Like that was, that yeah. was it. And even that was like accepted this much. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's not unusual to say the term white supremacy, mm-hmm. um, to, to say racial justice, social justice, um, anti-racism work. Like the fact that the nation is actually talking about abolition is bananas to me. Yeah. But the reality is, is that the language is permeating faster than its actual definitions are. Mm. So, so we talk about anti-racism work, but so often what people still hear is, are you racist? Are you not racist? Mm. Right. As opposed to what the work of anti-racism really is, which is, the courage to say when injustice is happening, Mm. right? So it isn't enough to like smile and nod. It isn't enough to be nice to the people in your neighborhood. It isn't enough, (laughs) right? It isn't enough to invite your black coworker to coffee. Like that's not what we're talking about, right? What, in what space are you being brave enough to say, this is not okay and Mm. this needs to change? Yeah. So let's back up a little bit because you've done such amazing work and I want the listeners to sort of understand like where you're coming from and how sure. you got into anti-racism work and like sure. what, how that became a thing where you're like, this is my calling. This is what I'm going to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Oh man. So I think it started with my name, honestly, Phoebe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell mm-hmm. my parents And you all wrote the about time. that in the book, which is so yeah. great. Such a great story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I tell my parents the moment they named me, my career was set. Like this, <laughs> I was only going to talk about race and gender for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so, so we grew up in like the late eighties, early nineties, like when everything got personalized, it was like mm-hmm. slapstick bracelets and keychains and those little mini license plates that I still don't mm-hmm. know what they're actually for. Right. <laughs> but, but with coffee mugs, like everything got personalized. And if the name Austin was on whatever that little trinket was, it was always blue. Mm. So I was very aware growing up that I had a boy's name. Yeah. But it wasn't until one day at the library that I asked my mom, where did I, like, what, what were you thinking? What mm-hmm. were you thinking? Why did you give me this name? And she said to me, Austin, we gave you this name because we knew that if anybody had just seen your name written, say, on an application, but hadn't met you in person yet, they would assume you are a white man. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's heavy to hear that. Okay. At seven. <laughs> Phoebe, the only application I had filled out at that point was for the doggone library card. Like, I don't, (laughs) what are we talking about right now? Right? Yeah. And so I definitely didn't like have a full like aha moment. Mm -hmm. But I do remember thinking, oh, that's why the librarian, the teacher, the stranger, the whoever is so shocked when they meet me. 
because yeah. they thought they were getting a white guy and instead they got all of this. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like I could I could see why that would be a little shocking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But consequently, I knew growing up that the world is not, in fact, colorblind. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a lie I could not believe because I watched how people's faces changed when they thought they was getting a white guy and got me instead. Yeah. And so, I mean, throughout the book, you write so much about that moment where people realize and they sort of try to fix their face a little bit to not make it read like, oh, I, I thought slash I hoped you were going to be a white guy and now I have to readjust for some reason as if you're like this space alien that is like so bizarre and not another human being um which is one of those things where you know whenever I, I talk about race with people and social media sometimes you get people who like I don't want to say trolls because there there's a difference I think trolls right. like know exactly what they're doing right. and then there are people right. who just don't get it and want to like right. try have a conversation and they're just like oh they they view an act of racism as one isolated event that each black person, each Asian person, each, you know, Latinx person has one racist incident in their life and that's it. So why not get over it? Like, what's the big deal? Not realizing, no, this is stuff that happens every day, every week, every month. And that after a while, it really, it's almost impossible for it to not affect you. And can you, can we just pause for a moment? No, don't apologize. (laughs) I would like for us to just pause for one moment and imagine what our lives would be like if we only had to have one instance of racism in our whole lives. Amazing. (laughs) That's, that's crazy. Like I can't even wrap my mind around like, I'd be like, Phoebe, have you had yours yet? It'd be like getting your period. Has it happened yet? Do you? <laughs> no, I'm still waiting. I'm still I'm waiting. So... <laughs> oh, that is too funny. No, that is definitely not how it works. Yeah. So, so that's why I really wanted to write the book, Phoebe, because I have been in predominantly white spaces for most of my life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was constantly reading books about the hood experience, right? So mm-hmm. the the black person, the black family who grows up in the hood and then gets some amazing chance to have this amazing job or go to this amazing school or, you know, go to the yeah. Ivy Leagues or goes into politics, right? But they have this like awakening of what white America really is, mm. right? And 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 it's it's uh, when through the lens of whiteness, it's often viewed as oh, so your situation was really bad and now it's really good. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. And and I think Coates has like ripped that to shreds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, I think Coates and I think social media mm-hmm. and you know I think there are a lot of people who have been like oh no, the black community is is really special actually and yeah. If you don't know, you don't know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need you to realize there's a lot special happening there. And what I wanted to do was to attack the other end, which is this idea that if you grew up in predominantly white spaces, then you're fine. Mm-hmm. No trauma, no, do yeah. you know, like everything, it was your one racial experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the mm-hmm. one, that one time you experienced racism, that first yeah. time somebody called you the N word. Yeah. And I just wanted to make plain 
how we daily face both systemic racism and that individual racism because mm-hmm. that trauma is real too. Yeah. And the thing that I think there are so many things that I loved about the book, but I think I loved you writing about your experience talking about this stuff within the church, just because mm-hmm. I'm not a religious person. I, I, mm-hmm. I consider myself more spiritual than anything else, but like I don't go to church or anything. Sure. And so I didn't even like think about sort of the dialogue that must be happening in the church or not happening in the church because <laughs> right. it's too uncomfortable and everyone wants to be, you know, polite and kind. And if you're bringing this stuff up, this means like you're trying to cause trouble. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious if you could just sort of talk a little bit about what your experience has been sort of trying to broach these subjects within the church and being like, Hey guys, like we need to, this is affecting our lives. So we have to talk about it. Yeah. That's a great question, PD. So I think the truth is, is that because I was attending predominantly white schools, mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to teach nobody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I did not sort of like wake up one morning and think, you know what, I'm going to be the anti-racist teacher and yeah. that is going to be it. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I was just trying to survive like all the other black kids are trying to survive. Mm-hmm. But what I realized very quickly is that whiteness was the norm in all of those schools. Yeah. And and the norm on different levels, right? So I remember sitting in a classroom being told that there are certain things we should do daily. We should brush our teeth daily and we should change our clothes daily and we should wash our hair daily. Mm-mm. Nope. Hello? <laughs> and I remember I remember like scanning the classroom for the black girls and be like, right? Like silent conversation in the middle of the classroom. Yeah. And none of us correcting the teacher, hmm. right? So this this knowledge that our white teachers didn't necessarily know about our life, mm-hmm. our culture, our literature, our heroes, our right, all of these things became my own secret knowledge. Hmm. And I learned how to hold on to those things, how to treasure those things, but how to still function in whiteness and how to get the grade that I needed and how to use the reference that I needed to use. And I learned how to smile and nod when teachers said things like, you know, just like when you're sailing. (laughs) You're like, wait, what? (laughs) Rigging. Sure. I don't know. What are you talking about? Like, if you reference Ferris Bueller's Day Off one more time, I don't know what you're talking about. Have you seen The Color Purple? (laughs) (laughs) Can you you use a movie that I know about? (laughs) You know, so it was really just trying to trying to make it, trying to not lose my identity mm-hmm. in a world that acted like my identity didn't exist. Yeah. And I feel like, um, just to jump in, like, you know, I've been thinking about sort of my college education because I went to Pratt yes. Institute and, mm-hmm. you know, I had an amazing time. Um, but, you know, I only had one black teacher my entire four years Um, and that was an African-American studies class. So that's when we read, you know, all books by black authors, but it made me think about, you know, now I'm 36, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, 
now I realize how messed up that was. Like now I right. realize how much that education was not well-rounded right. and the books that I missed out on shaping my mind when I was 19. You right. know what I mean? And so I think that's a thing that people don't understand. Like, yes, you could go to a, you know, like a historically black mm-hmm. college or institute mm-hmm. if you want to, but it's also like these books should be in all schools, like all colleges right. should sort of have a more inclusive curriculum. And it makes yep. me think about a your book being in schools, which I think is really exciting. And also just sort of like I think people who are not people of color don't understand that when you're in an educational environment mm-hmm. and you don't study anything by people yes. who look like you, even if you yes. don't say anything about it you're internalizing that and you're processing that like oh I haven't done any my people haven't done anything worthy of being studied and celebrated do you feel that way too oh my goodness Phoebe and not not only do I feel that way Mm -hmm. I also feel like it explains a lot of the moral bankruptcy that -hmm. exists in white America Mm-hmm. Um, because can you imagine having not read Toni Morrison yeah, or Alice Walker yeah. or Langston Hughes or Nikki Giovanni or James Baldwin or right. Can you, mm-hmm. can you imagine not being exposed to the music that we've been listening to all our lives and the literature we've been reading and the movies we've been watching and the stories that we've been telling like no wonder our community is so distinct. Yeah. Which yeah. doesn't seem like it should be able to be possible, right? Mm-hmm. We're like 13% of the population. We're spread out all over the country. It yeah. really, in some ways, doesn't make sense mm-hmm. that when, when skiwis happen in celebration of Kamala, that there are white people who have no idea what's happening. <laughs> like, how have we managed to actually keep our culture a secret? Like, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Yeah. And yet, here we are, right? Because our culture is considered important only for us. Mm-hmm. And if we think it's important, then we have to go find it ourselves. Yeah. But the truth is, America would be better if if curriculum were more diverse, mm-hmm. if more voices were present. Um, but America, for the most part, just isn't interested. Yeah, which is, I, I, sometimes when you be like, you're lost, but I'm also like, <laughs> come on, you guys, just freaking open the door. Like, why are you being so dumb about this? Which, you know. I know, that's, energy, a Vera, that's a Vera Zora Neale Hurston response where she's yeah. like, I don't understand why anyone would deny themselves the pleasure of me, but okay. (laughs) I don't don't understand it, but if you don't want all of this, all right. (laughs) Okay. So as we're looking at the world now and Mm -hmm. it's very, I feel like we're in kind of dark times a little bit. Yeah. Um, How are you sort of seeing anti-racism work progressing during this period because I think we're we're really mm-hmm. in a place where it's like you can be a white man with a rifle and go down the street and shoot people and it's fine it's like that's unreal. a very scary place to be in and so I'm wondering yeah. how you're feeling like the work is going to be able to counteract that sort of rage and violence that we're we're facing every day 
The truth is, Hebe, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. The, the things that I find encouraging that is different from the legacy of our past mm-hmm. is that women, Black women in particular, are much more at the forefront mm. than we have in any time past, right? Yeah. So so black women have been, been the backbone of every you know major mm-hmm. civil rights movement since forever. But we've often had to stay in the background, be at yeah. the copy machine, organizing the, you know, the event but not speaking at the event, mm-hmm. right? And because of of social media and because of all that work, we now get to write our own books and we now get to tweet and we now get to say, oh no, this is my thought and you will not take credit for my Mm -hmm. thought, right? And there's something really special about that, but it it also makes me nervous for us because we have been doing this work for so long and because it is such dangerous work. Mm -hmm. And that's really what white people don't like to talk about. White people really like to talk about how their hearts and minds are being changed or how, how they're listening and reading or how they're, you know what I mean? But, but the truth is, is that when we do this work, there is every possibility that you and I are going to get a death threat after this releases. Yeah. You know, like, like there are real consequences. I'll never forget, um, Tarana Burke talking about doing an event when we could still do those in person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and, and there was a white couple who disagreed with what she was saying mm-hmm. and were waiting for her at her car <gasps> when she left the building. What? Right. I wow. know speakers who, who specifically talk about racial justice, who have a security clause in their writer that is about noting where the exits are and always having someone involved in security nearby and right like us having to think through not just the state of affairs of the world but also think through how to make sure we make it back home to our families yeah and it's a lot it's a lot Yeah. And so I want to go back to you talking about how black women are now really much more at the forefront Mm. than you've ever been. And so I'm curious as to how you feel about that. Like how, like, is that empowering for you? Is, are you feeling sort of like, Oh my God, I can, I can use my voice in a way that like the women who came before me couldn't. Cause I know that like, it's very, it's really hard. I think for women in general, but I think women of color to Mm -hmm. really be okay with using their voice, because like you said, there's, threats there's like people making you feel bad about yourself that you could lose job opportunities like so much could happen when you're being outspoken but now it feels like there's a there's more of a place for us to raise our voices and people will be receptive to that yeah it's it's always a both and right Phoebe Mm -hmm. like it's always this duality so it's it's better than it was yeah (laughs) But if we asked, if we like polled Instagram right now for like the major racial justice voices, I'm sure it would still be predominantly men that would get listed, right? But there's no denying that so much of the work that these men are writing on Mm -hmm. or have been shaped by has come from women like Bell Hooks, like Toni Morrison, like Audre Lorde, right? Like like our influence is, is outsized. Um, compared to our reaping the rewards. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so it is this duality, but I think most of us are incredibly inspired Mm -hmm. by the women who had less and still spoke more. Mm, Right. So Ida B. Wells talk about death threats. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, like burning her shit down, like Mm -hmm. chasing her out of town. And yet she would still write that not only are black men not actually being lynched because they're raping white women, but the truth is, is that white women actually really like them black men. And that is why they must be lynched. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is a hardcore thing to write. Yeah. When people can literally chase you out of town. I know. So I think we are finding our voices for this time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really proud of the women who are doing that. And in multiple spheres, Phoebe, because it is one thing to like actively push the buttons of Mm -hmm. white America Mm -hmm. by talking about race and racism. But the truth is there are white people who are offended by black women CEOs and by black women with their own podcast and black women who get to be on HBO and black, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, right. Because, because America has been set up so that with, with the idea that black folks are naturally inferior. Mm -hmm. And so when we succeed, when we make it, it crumbles, that idea crumbles. And so I think the very existence of Black folks is resistance enough. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that we're here Mm -hmm. is resistance enough. If you ain't do nothing else, Phoebe, (laughs) you being here, right, is resistance enough. You are a Black girl who can laugh. That is huge, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I, I, I think we're in a place in America where we are all figuring out what our place in the movement is and trying desperately to hold on to that and not shrink from what is our moment to shine. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I'm really inspired by seeing on social media, all these teens and seeing people in their early 20s going out and being so vocal in a way that when I was 25 or 21, I just wasn't like it just wasn't. I just was not as like, I don't know. I don't want to say like politically active, but it just what it didn't occur to me that like, oh, this is something that I needed to be doing. Right, um, right. And and now we're seeing this swell from like the youth just really like going being so loud, being so vocal. And I'm wondering if you have like sort of like if you could tell your younger self yeah. when you were getting into anti-racism work, like mm-hmm. here are the things I wish I had known and here are the things that like I wish I did more of when I was younger. Yeah. What would you say? Wow. I, well, first of all, I'm really proud of the young people who, I mean, I just did a youth teach-in the other day and at the end their Q&A was like, okay, but can you tell me more about intersectionality and what I should be doing about that? And I was like, hello, (laughs) I'm so sorry I did not cover that in my lecture. (laughs) 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 So sorry. (laughs) Um, so they, but they do, they know so much more. And I used to work on a college campus for about four years and I would have students who would come to me, Phoebe, and tell me that they, um, that they couldn't sleep because they were constantly learning, right? Because of their phones, they could just scroll from article to article to article. And they had a hard time turning it off 
and not just like consuming more and more and more information. And so it's astounding what students know now. But I also have to say, Phoebe, part of what I'm fighting for is for our kids to be able to just be kids. Yeah. I think it's great that they're politically active. And I think I think that will have real impact, real change, right? I don't believe that there's like the youth impact and the adult impact, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. if you're a person, you'll have impact. There's like a junior impact and a senior impact, right? <laughs> um, but part of me also just wants them to watch movies mm-hmm. and just wants them to be on TikTok goofing around and yeah. just wants them to, you know, to just frolic. I want them to frolic. I want them to (laughs) I want them to play in the sprinkler. I want them to, you know. Um so man, for my younger self, who knows? She was just trying to figure it out, Phoebe. Mm -hmm. She was just trying to figure out who she is (laughs) and where she belongs and when she could get rid of those thick, ugly glasses and (laughs) you know, when would she be old enough for contacts? You know, like she was just (laughs) She was just trying to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you said you want the youth to be able to just sort of like frolic and have fun and not just be weighted down by anti-racism work. So I guess before I go to audience questions, my Mm. last question for you is sort of how are you taking care of yourself right now? How are you able to take off the jacket of being the teacher of anti-racism and writing about this and speaking about this and doing podcasts about this and just be able to be Austin? Yeah. So the truth is, is that I really do love this. Like Mm -hmm. I would, I would do this every day of the week, but Um, but burnout is real, even when you love it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so instead of thinking about self-care as recovery, right. That I need to, I need to do my facial and use my jade roller because I am now recovering from having been with Phoebe. (laughs) Right. Like instead of thinking about it like that, I'm trying really hard to think about how I include self-care as part of my work. Mm. Um, so for example, because the pandemic is just altogether too much, um, I have decided that every six to eight weeks, I'm going to take either a week off or a long weekend. Nice. Um, you know, because I just need there to be weeks that I know are coming, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that are marked out on the calendar when I know I don't have to do this, right? Yeah. And I know that I can just grow frolic or I can watch Netflix or I can do whatever else it is that fancies me at the time, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm also thinking about uh, like how I literally insert joy into my work. Um, So every time I give a workshop, I I kind of use it as my opportunity to pretend that I'm a stand-up comedian. It's like my... (laughs) It's like my two dope queens moment, you know, (laughs) how many times can I get them to laugh (laughs) at the absurdity of racism? (laughs) But I I do, I think any projects that I take on, at least in the next couple of years, if it's not infused with joy, then I might Mm -hmm. have to say no. Um, So I'm, I'm trying, I'm just trying really hard to think about not just how I recover from the work, but how I do the work in the first place. Yeah. And I hope there's going to be more books from you. I hope so. Fingers crossed. 
we can talk I offline so. about it, but I just, I Let's want there to be Let's talk about more. it offline, but yeah. my fingers are crossed. Yeah, I want there to there be more There might be books. something in the works, maybe. It's <gasps> ah! <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Okay, so I want to move to audience questions because we got some really yeah, do that. good ones today. Um, and, you know, I just think people are really just excited to sort of just like get your wisdom on like how to navigate all of things. this. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Let's start with this one. This is from Holly in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. She writes, did any white church ladies in your orbit, either at work or at church, um, read your book and actually learn from it and discuss it with you? Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's how the book unfolded. So okay. I was working at, you know, all these predominantly white organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, ta Coates' book, Between the World and Me, gets released and is like yeah. a firestorm, right? And I'm like, oh, good. Now publishers realize that Black stories matter again, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I submit my proposal and I'm like, here's a Black girl story about growing up and black around white people. Yeah. And she's like, so you want to write a memoir about white women touching your hair? Like that's, uh, that's it. And I was like, mm-hmm. uh, oh my <laughs> gosh, it. people that's are... exactly it. Yeah. Like, why <laughs> is it even a like, question? Why is that even a question? And she told me, no, she was like, you're not famous. Like that's a book like that isn't going to sell. You can't Same. write a memoir if you're not famous. Happen. Yep. Right. I heard that too. Yep. Uh-huh. So I held on to it. Right. And, and when was this? Up... When was this was like 2015? Yeah, this okay, was like okay. just before Ferguson. So okay. yeah, yeah. Um, Ferguson hadn't happened yet, but Trayvon Martin was like mm-hmm. unfolding. So whenever mm-hmm. that season is. Um, so I keep working, keep writing. I start my own blog and eventually editors are looking for me. Right. And so by the time I actually get um, picked up to write a book, I'm uh, working at a Christian college. I'm a resident director. So mm-hmm. I'm directing a dormitory of 240 18 and 19 year olds in my wow. spare time writing a book. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> I also get pregnant, Phoebe. So now I'm pregnant, a dorm director, and I'm oh writing a book. <laughs> And when I turned in that last draft, I also quit my job. <laughs> like, wow, you were going for it. Yeah. Done. <laughs> I'm done. Give me the advance. I will live on it for a year. Yeah. If I have to go get a job after that, so be it. But <laughs> I'm taking my chance. Yeah. That is a very long way of answering the question and saying, <laughs> I actually didn't have to talk to any white people about it because I quit my job before the book came out. <laughs> That's baller. <laughs> Did any of them come up to you after the book came out and be like, Austin, can we talk about this, this, this? And you're just like, I, I, I can't the ones right now. who knew they were in it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> they were like, I have nothing to say to her now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in this book. I know she's talking about me. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, Phoebe, yeah. one of the things I worry about, because I hope that the first line indicates that I wrote this book for Black women, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. my my fear is always that once the coworkers, the white coworkers of black women read the book, 
that they are going to get peppered with all these mm. questions and offers for coffee dates and yeah. all the things. That was it was a worry of mine, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's understandable. And I think that like, not to excuse it, but I th- I think sometimes that white people think like, oh, this is the way that I can make it better. And like, they're just not understanding. Like, it's not about like a coffee date. It's not about like being nice. It's about like changing your behavior and the behavior of the people around you when that's right a lot of that behavior is not seen by other people right like that's right. but we know when something is being is being said that's inappropriate or is racist that other people can't see it's that's about exactly recognizing right. that behavior and yes that requires more work you know what i mean a and lot that's more the, work yeah and i'm not giving you cookies for smiling and nodding at me yeah yeah <laughs> your face <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving you cookies because you offered to go get me a bottle of water after people interrupted me for the last hour in this meeting. I don't, I'm I'm trying not to throw the bottle of water at you. God. So I hope that answers your question, Holly. Um, okay. This is, this is a great one. This is from, um, Brenna in Springfield, Illinois. She writes, how has your Christian faith been challenged in the face of racism? I am really fortunate to have had parallel experiences Mm -hmm. in which I was navigating white Christianity, but also was being nurtured by black Christianity. Yeah. I think if I hadn't had a black church and all I knew about God had come from the white places that I would be in, Mm -hmm. there would have come a point where there would have been some sort of like trauma, reckoning, falling apart, (laughs) something. I was like, now who is God and what does God want? (laughs) I am very confused. Um, But I'm grateful to have had a black church. So So the way that I sort of clarify this for people is that Um, I would go to like chapel services at school Mm -hmm. and the male speaker would get up and he would say, "Um, you know, your words are like this tube of toothpaste. And when, when I squeeze this tube of toothpaste, see how it all comes out. Now I want one of you students, please come try and put the toothpaste back in the bottle. Mm. This is like your words, right? It's so hard to put back away. You, you, so you got to think about how you treat your sibling." And how you talk to your parents and how you, right? And I'd be like, okay. Yeah. And right. And now do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Right. Like that's how how that went. Right. (laughs) But then I would go to my black church and the pastor would be like, and in the second book of Exodus, we find that God himself comes down from heaven and frees the slaves, right? Like two very different understandings of what God wants from us, Phoebe. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so honestly, it's been a gift to, to not have, to not even think that there is one form of Christian religion Mm-hmm. to not mm-hmm. think that there is one form of understanding God, even in a Christian context, that I grew up um, very much connected to this idea that God cares about sex workers and God cares about my auntie who can't afford a car, 
but needs to get to work. And God cares about those who have got to go to the courtroom or those who are in the doctor's room or those yeah. who are right. That, that there is a faith that I was able to have that is very much connected to themes of race and justice mm-hmm. and womanhood. And so I didn't have a falling apart that I think a lot of white evangelicals have. Mm. I'm glad that that didn't happen to you. Oh, that's so good. Um, Okay. So this question is from one of my closest friends. I feel like I've known him like Mm. almost half my life. He's also a stand-up comic. His name is Baron. I love him. He has two cute little Coco kids. Um, So so Baron writes, um, everyone, Black people included, are shocked and amazed white supremacists are here killing other white people as well during these protests. Personally, I think it's a return of the N-word lover as if these are quote-unquote bad whites who are quote-unquote race traitors. Your Mm -hmm. thoughts on white anti-whiteness? When I got this question, I was like, this is above my pay grade. I don't know what to say. This is very learned of you, Baron. I'm going to leave this to Austin. Baron, where are the laughs? Is is there a punchline? I don't... Good God. All right. Well, that's a really good question. So mm-hmm. the truth is, is that... this Here's why this question is tricky. Mm-hmm. There is the Black experience of in the pursuit of racial justice, right? And then for the ally, co-conspirator, co-laborer, whatever you want to call it, for the white person who is committed to racial justice, that is a very different experience. Um, And sometimes if we're not careful, we can make them sound like, even though the experiences are different, that they are the same weight. And they're not right. So, so the black person pursuing racial justice in America that hates us is on another level. Right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that white people who are committed to anti-racism aren't also experiencing frustration, loneliness, mm-hmm. depression. Um, and now in many cases, not many, in some cases are paying for it with their lives. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's important for white people to talk more about that. Yeah. Um, historically, white people have white allies when, when push comes to shove, have been willing to be martyrs. You know, the, the white guys who have died recently are part of a legacy of white allies who have given their lives for racial justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that not to minimize, but to connect, right? To connect to this long legacy of a multiracial campaign for justice, right? Yeah. Um, but it is true that white people who commit themselves to anti-racism work, they might lose their jobs, their families might stop talking to them, their friends might turn away. They're, you know, they're, they can't go home for Christmas anymore because their parents feel like, I don't know who you are anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are very real costs. There can be, there can be very real costs for white folks who are committed and other white folks hate them too. Yeah. (sighs) We are in such a damn mess right now. Okay. It's such a mess, Phoebe. It's such a mess. Um, this is from Rochelle and SoCal and like this, 
this question, I was like, oh, I felt it in my soul. So mm. Rochelle writes, I'm a black woman, angry as hell and feeling yes. paralyzed by anger and sadness. Sure. How can I move forward? Which I think is something that so many people, myself included, are sort of figuring like, how can we move forward? Like we're living in a world with all this unrest. We're living in a world where we're still expected to show up and do work and compartmentalize the That's trauma right. that we're absorbing. That's and right. we're still supposed to be hopeful. You know, we're thinking back to Obama in 08, like the hope <laughs> and yes, we can and all this stuff. And it feels so far away now in so 2020. So far away. God. So how can we move forward? Yeah. So, so <laughs> in some ways moving forward is all black folks know. Yeah. Like that's all we know. And the reason why it's all we know is because sometimes we do this work as part of the legacy of our ancestors. I feel like I've talked a lot about our ancestors in, mm -hmm. in this conversation. Um, sometimes we do it for our children or the children that we love, right? Yeah. But I think, honestly, Phoebe, I think at the core, we do it for ourselves. Mm. Because the truth is, is that you, you as an individual, you as Phoebe Robinson are worthy of your inherent dignity being honored by this country. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I am worthy of my inherent dignity being honored when I step outside of my house. Mm -hmm. I am worthy of my culture being honored when I am at school. I am, wor I am worthy of being spoken to with respect when I do get pulled over. I am worthy of receiving the same treatment by the systems and structures of America that everybody else gets. I'm yeah. worthy. And because I'm worthy, stopping isn't an option, right? And so I think what is important for us to do are a couple things. One, um, we do have to realize that we are all in this work together. And that is why last night I was able to eat three different kinds of ice cream and take my ass to bed. <laughs> right? <laughs> because this whole project called racial justice does not depend on me. Mm -hmm. Right. It depends on the organizers in Chicago and it depends on the protesters in Kenosha and it depends on the, the attorneys who are trying to set folks free and it depends on the nurses and the doctors who are working on medical racism and it right like it depends on all of us and so that means you get to take a time out mm. that means you get to take a time out because we're in this together None, there there's no even mlk who was propped up as like the savior of black folks right yeah. Phoebe, tell me what an MLK speech looks like if ain't nobody there to listen to it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, the, like, like King wasn't the sort of like isolated Jesus character who came down from heaven and like just spoke into the hearts of men, right? Like there were organizers around him. There were protesters around him. There were people he was in conversation with, people he was talking with while he was doing stuff wherever he was, Robert Abernathy was doing stuff other places and John Lewis was doing mm -hmm. stuff other places and Nina Simone was writing Mississippi goddamn and you know what I mean yeah. like it has it has always been all of us 
And so I think it's important that when we feel sad or when we feel hopeless, when we feel despair, when we feel weariness, that we're honest about that, that we're honest about that, and that we take the time to take care of ourselves, Mm -hmm. knowing that we will get back to the work when we're ready. And that the work doesn't stop just because I stopped. That was honestly the perfect answer. And the perfect way to end this conversation. That was so inspiring. I'm so excited and so happy for your success. And, you know, I think of all the things that we touched on today, I think one of the things that makes me so excited about you is I think so often that black women's work and their voices are left out of the conversation. And I love that you are being just so uplifted. And so there's such a bright light shined on you and the work that you're doing and the work that you're writing, I think is so important. I'm so, so happy for you. So thank you so much for doing Black Fraser today. This was such, such a joy. Yay! Okay, good. <laughs> oh, bake off. Was that not the best? That was a lovely episode. Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. I miss her. I wanna, like I said before, I want I want us to have Sunday lunch together. Have I, crumpets and tea. <laughs> Bloody crumpets. Hang out. Yeah. I feel like she can teach, like, or the conversations we'll have will be fantastic. Yeah, and I feel like if we did do a double date with her and her bae, mm. it'd be so cute. It'd mm-hmm. be really yummy. But she doesn't live in New York. Wait till this bloody pandemic's over. And, and then you can fly us. <laughs> oh, I will. Hop in my Cessna. And off we go, eh? <laughs> you guys, as per usual, we are shouting out a black business, black owned business. Um, and today I thought, you know, you guys have seen the, the logo, the key art. Is that what they call in the biz? No, just logo. <laughs> But I thought key art is a phrase. I don't uh, know. <laughs> Just love not, not in audio plus it's not. Oh my God. Okay. So I guess it's not, key art is not what it's called. It's just the logo for Black Frasier. And this woman is a queen. She's a really cool illustrator. And she's done other stuff for me in the past, which has always been fantastic. So I want to shout her out. You go to her Instagram. It is B peppers art that's b as in poi b as in poise mm. i see you still haven't gotten hang of the phonetic alphabet b as in boy p as in paul e as in eric p as in patricia p as in phyllis e as in elijah r as in ronald a as in alicia R as in Robinson, T as in Tiara. Who are these people? (laughs) It's like the strangest game of guess who. (laughs) Anyway, the point is, follow her on Instagram. She has a link to her shop. Uh, She has a store on um, society6.com. And then you can buy like all these really cool prints that she has. They're very, they're so stunning. Like, look at this stuff, babe. They're stunning. Oh, yeah, that's really good. It's so good. She's so cool. So shout out to B Peppers Art. Support Brianna. Okay, you guys? Okay. Brianna!
Secrets, hosted by Phoebe Lynn Robinson, produced by Phoebe Lynn Robinson and British Bake Off, edited by British Bake Off using Audio Plus, and <laughs> theme song, Gavin Turek. I guess that's it. Mm-hmm. You sure you don't want to like hang out and talk some more? Nah, I'm good. I'm going to go back to uh, audio class. <laughs> <laughs>